Welcome to the New Zealand China Council podcast. I'm Alistair Crozier, the Executive Director of the Council. Recently, we launched a report titled In Perspective, the New Zealand-China Trade and Business Relationship 2022 Update. The report builds on a 2020 Council report, How Many Eggs in How Many Baskets. It drills down into our current bilateral export profile, analysing the situation facing different sectors and products in the China market, and estimating the likely impacts in response to market disruption. This podcast is a recording of a webinar we organised as part of our report launch. We're grateful to the team at the North Asia Centre of Asia-Pacific Excellence for jointly delivering the webinar with the Council. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank the report author, John Ballingall, and team at Sense Partners, and our funding partners, New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, New Zealand International Business Forum, ANZ Bank, the North Asia Centre of Asia-Pacific Excellence, and Minter Allison Rudd-Watts. Here's a recording of the webinar. Our report shows that while New Zealand's global exports grew by just over 5% in 2021, New Zealand goods exports to China grew by almost 20% and imports from China by 26%. So despite the severe decline in services exports, which the report also covers, it concludes that the China market has played a major role to pull New Zealand's economy through the COVID period. But with every rise in the volume and value of our exports to China comes a renewed focus on issues around market concentration. Are we too exposed to a single market? Back in 2018, 25% of our goods exports went to China. Last year, that figure was up to well over 30%. This leads to alarming headlines as New Zealand engages with China on a range of interests, including some areas where we have clear differences. Billions of dollars of trade with China at risk and so on. I'm sure you'll have all heard and seen those kind of headlines. So our new report does a deep dive under these headlines to focus in on what market concentration actually means for different sectors, products and companies. It's not a monolithic situation. We need all the data and insights we can get to understand what strong exposure to a single market like China actually means for our exporters and our economy. Two quick points. First, our research doesn't advise companies what to do, as they can and must make decisions about their business themselves but it does provide an additional lens for looking at the issues they face. And secondly, the report focuses on data to the end of 2021. Obviously, 2022 has started in a challenging way for China as it continues to grapple with how to respond to Omicron and what this means for the Chinese people and economy and for our trade. While outside the scope of the written report, I'm sure some of these latest issues may come up in discussion today as well. I'm very pleased to be joined now by three awesome panellists to talk through these issues. To briefly introduce them, John Ballingall wrote the report. John is a partner at Sense Partners and previously worked at NZIER and MFAT. John also wrote our Council's 2020 report, How Many Eggs and How Many Baskets, which focused on some of the same issues. Simon Tucker is Director of Global Sustainability, Stakeholder Affairs and Trade at Fonterra, which as we all know has a major focus on the China market, but also on multiple other markets globally. And Andy Watton is Chief Operating Officer at Kono. Kono is a Maori food and beverage producer and exporter of world-class wine and beer, seafood, fruit and natural fruit bars. Right, to kick things off, uh, John's going to walk us through the key aspects and findings of his report now. 
to set the scene for our discussion. John, over to you. Thank you very much, Alistair. Alistair, you said uh, it's essential to get all the facts and figures uh, around New Zealand-China trade. Now, spoiler alert for those who read the 2020 report, my views haven't changed very much, but I do acknowledge there is a wide range of views on this issue and reasonable people can disagree. So I hope we can do that uh, in the Q&A later on. So this chart shows China's share of goods imports on the, the vertical axis and its share of goods exports on the horizontal axis. So anything in the top right quadrant there shows that a country is more than averagely exposed uh, to either imports or exports from China. As you can see, New Zealand there is in that quadrant and um, our current export exposure is around 32.6% in calendar year 2021. The bilateral trade relationship amounted to around $38 billion of goods and services in 2021. Uh, New Zealand exported around $21 billion of goods and services over that period and imported around 16 billion. And as Alistair noted, I don't think it's a stretch to say that China played a, an important role in pulling New Zealand through uh, the COVID-19 economic downturn. So between 2019 and 2021, exports to many of our key markets such as Australia, Japan, the UK uh, and Malaysia, they fell or stayed relatively unchanged. China accounted for almost a, a, a third of our goods exports in 2021. And as our report outlines, and, and hopefully we've, we've tried to be very clear-eyed about that, uh, that increased concentration comes with both benefits and risks. This chart shows uh, the destination of our goods exports over the, the past 30 odd years. Uh, China's share of our goods exports is in red there at the bottom. Uh, and you can see it's risen from around 13% in 2011 up to 32.6% uh, in 2021. And I think it's worth briefly revisiting why we've seen such a, a large increase in our exports into China, because this will feed into the discussion later around uh, diversification potential. First of all, China wants what we're producing. We've got a strong comparative advantage in primary produce, high quality agricultural food and beverage products. And China has a very strong desire to uh, consume those products. Um, the free trade agreement we have with them since 2008 has reduced most trade barriers, uh, which gives us a, a cost advantage going into China compared to some of our competitors. And I think quite importantly, there's, there's not such a strong domestic agricultural lobby that makes noise when imports of food and beverages start to increase. And that's not the case in all of our other key export markets. And ultimately, size and growth matters. Economic modelling over the past 30 years nearly always shows that the key determinant of uh, bilateral trade flows is size, distance, income and cultural factors. And these things have been working in our favour over the past uh, 15, 20 years. So while we're, we're not the most exposed to China in the Asia-Pacific region, um, Australia and Chile are, are both uh, more exposed than we are on the export side of things. It is true that our export concentration has grown the fastest of, of most of the Asia-Pacific countries. And uh, that's been great for, for businesses in New Zealand able to meet Chinese demand. Uh, but the rapid pace of change 
um, has been unsettling for, for some commentators, some politicians and, and some officials. And yeah, that's starting to lead to louder calls for diversification. As I said, um, uh, this chart shows uh, the shares of exports going to each of the, the top five markets for the various countries down the vertical axis there. So our export exposure to China of around 32.6% is certainly quite high, but it's not abnormally high compared to, to some other countries. And I think my bottom point there is, is the one I keep coming back to whenever I have these discussions with, with people around export concentration. If you think that 32.6% of our exports going to China is too much, then what amount should we send to China? Is it 20%, 10%, 25? I simply don't know how you would work that out. Ultimately, it's a value judgment uh, and very difficult to determine empirically. So that's the, the point I keep coming back to. Um, we, we also go through in the report and try and uh, identify some of the New Zealand exports that perhaps are at are at most risk from trade disruption, and we have to acknowledge that they are. This chart shows the share of New Zealand's exports in a product that goes to China along the horizontal axis, and on the vertical axis, it shows New Zealand's share of Chinese imports. So how much does China rely on New Zealand for its overall imports from the world? So when you combine these measures of exposure and leverage, you can divide the, the diagram up into quadrants, and economists love quadrant diagrams. Each of the, the four-digit numbers there represent a separate product in our export profile. Those in the, the bottom right quadrant are those where over 50% of our total exports of each product go to China, and where China has a lot of other markets from which it could buy that product. Therefore, we don't have very much leverage. For example, if we look at HS0306, which is on the, the bottom right of that diagram, the, the, the bottom right dot, uh, China takes around 97% of our total exports of lobsters and crabs, but it sources around 95% of its total imports of those products from markets other than New Zealand. So it's got plenty of choices about who to buy lobsters from. And indeed, if there was trade disruption, it probably wouldn't need to import lobsters from other people. It's not an absolute necessity of life. So this is just a fairly simple way of trying to identify some of the products which um, are highly exposed and where we don't have a lot of uh, market power. And you know, we, we, we do have to confront the question of what happens if there is trade disruption into China. And that can come from, from a whole range of, of potential sources could come from the, the COVID uh, policy, which is keeping people housebound at the moment in China. It could come from um, you know, income shocks. It could come from economic coercion. It could come from another pandemic. But we do have to acknowledge that um, trade disruption with China um, is absolutely a possibility. And if we think about what might happen, say, for example, there is um, trade disruption on one of our key exports into China, I think what we will see is that Kiwi firms will adjust. So the diagram there just shows that at a high level, uh, at the moment, Australia and New Zealand exporting a lot to China, and I think it's Brazil and the US. If for whatever reason, we're, we're not exporting so much to China, but China still needs to buy primary products, it might buy more from Brazil, say. That means that the US is getting less from Brazil, and the US might need to look elsewhere for its um, primary product imports. And again, New Zealand might be able to export more to um, the US. So this is like a, a general equilibrium view of the world. It's borne out by what's happened in Australia. So you know, there, there were um, 
bans placed on, on imports of Australian coal into China, and the value of coal exported to China fell 99.8% between 2019 and 2021. But China only accounted for around uh, a fifth of Australia's total coal exports. 79% already went to other markets. But the key thing that we're trying to show is that if New Zealand exporters are able to shift their products between markets, even if there's a, a degree of wastage um, and, and a degree of price drops as we go to slightly lower price markets, you know, there, there will be a loss in exports if there's you know, a, a reason why our products can't get into China. But it won't be the entire amount of our trade that we lose overall. Our analysis suggests that um, for those products in the red square in the matrix, those ones that, that were most at risk, we might look at export losses of around a billion dollars. Now, that's not trivial, obviously, and for some products and sectors, that will be highly damaging. But what we're trying to say is that these losses need to be put in perspective of a $20 billion relationship with China, uh, export relationship with China, and there are $63 billion overall exports. Um, in terms of what should be done about our trade concentration in China, if you believe something should be done, well, certainly our trade negotiators have been working hard on trying to open up alternative markets for New Zealand. Um, they managed to complete the UK free trade agreement, working exceedingly hard on the EU free trade agreement. And uh, there's a possibility of, of the agreement with the Gulf nations uh, starting up again as well. Efforts to uh, build deeper trade ties with US and India are the next obvious ones. Uh, neither particularly easy, things we've been trying to do for over 20 years, but I know those discussions are still going on. And we can keep plugging away at the World Trade Organization to try and reduce the amount of subsidies in, in the agricultural markets in particular. So there's a lot that our trade negotiators can keep doing. And there's a lot that uh, organizations like New Zealand Trade and Enterprise and others can do in terms of providing economic information on markets and alternatives to New Zealand businesses so that they're able to be better informed about where else they might be able to sell their products. So I think economic diplomacy reporting there from MPAT is very helpful too. And I think finally, the, the key is to keep having discussions like this. Um, it's, it's a really important topic and, and I'm looking forward to the questions and answers later on. Thanks for the overview, John. Um, I'd like to bring in Simon and Andy now. Uh, and Simon, I guess a simple one for you uh, to start with is how have Fonterra's China exports fared over the last couple of COVID years? And if you have the data to hand, have your exports to China as a percentage of your total exports increased, uh, mirroring that, that national trend that John's been discussing? Thanks, Alistair, and good afternoon, everyone. Kia ora tato. Tajahao, it's a real privilege to be here and, and thank you very much. I think maybe just to say, while we're talking about China in the past couple of years, I think we're all quite mindful of the tough situation that uh, that our colleagues and uh, people of China are having, particularly in Shanghai at the moment. So I would like just to acknowledge um, that difficulty and I think we all hope that, uh, that China gets through this latest wave as quickly as possible. Look, I think the fundamental point's already been made and that's that the China economy despite the challenges of the pandemic in the past couple of years, has done extremely well. And that has obviously underpinned this rise in, in China, uh, in, in New Zealand exports to China and, and Fonterra. Certainly, to your specific question, Alistair, we've increased our amount of business on the ground there. I think the other backdrop here uh, for us is that 
COVID has coincided with a time of very strong international pricing for dairy. Um, there has been good demand. It's been different demand in some cases, but good demand and, and certainly constrained supply. So overall, you know, you've seen the, the value of that export grow uh, as prices have set high and demand has been strong. Certainly in ingredients, demand has been pretty consistent in our China market. Um, as well as ingredients, obviously, we also export a lot of food service, billions of dollars of food service business in China and our consumer business as well. And I think what we've seen is obviously during lockdowns, food service tends to fall off a bit of a cliff. Um, but what we do find is that people are cooking at home a lot more. And so the ability to shift products has been pretty good for us overall. China has performed strongly. Um, I would make the point for those of you who read Fonterra financial statements very, very carefully, obviously high milk prices and ingredients is not an issue, but when you're doing food service uh, or consumer products, high milk prices does put a squeeze on profitability. So while overall revenue, uh, say in our recent financial results is up, um, the profitability of food service and the year to date in China is down a bit although that's off the back of last year when we saw very strong growth. Um, but look, fundamentally, Alistair, it's been a really positive story. Our business has performed very strongly during the past couple of years uh, in the China market. Relative exposure to the many markets that Fonterra exports to is, I'm sure, one of the factors that you do track as a component of your risk assessment and, and mitigation strategy. To the extent that you're able to share it with us, how does Fonterra evaluate and manage that? Is, is that something that worries your company as, as much as it seems to worry some others in New Zealand at the moment? Um, I mean, Fonterra, we export to somewhere between 130 and 140 markets around the world. So we are quite diversified and we divide the world into three large offshore markets, one of which is Greater China, one of which is Asia Pacific, which is essentially the non-Greater China part of that region. Uh, and then there's a sort of a rest of the world business. And in broad terms, our portfolio is split one third, one third, one third across those three big offshore markets and then divided into those, those 130 markets. And look, we do think about optionality. I think one of the things that we do have, Alistair, is as a global business, we can not only pivot between products, depending on where demand is or where geopolitical risk may arise, but also um, between markets as well. And I think that is a, a fundamental mitigant that we do tend to have. I mean, obviously we track as an organization, we have uh, a group risk appetite framework with 12 fundamental risks. And, and one of those is geopolitical risk. So we track quite a few geopolitical risks around the world and keep a pretty, pretty close eye on that. And we undertake what mitigations we can, including working closely with partners in different markets. And look, I should have said earlier, I think one of the things that's underpinned our success in, in China is we feel very much part of the fabric of the, the Chinese food industry. Uh, we have very strong customer and consumer relationships and partnerships on the ground there, which I think also is an important factor in thinking about mitigations. Great, thank you. Andy, um, bringing in Connell, which provides, uh, I guess, a different case study for all of us, um, partly because of scale, at least for the time being, uh, and also because you export a range of different products to China, including wine, uh, but also mussels and, and kora, lobster. 
Yeah. Is Connor's level of China market concentration the same for each of your product categories or do you have a stronger focus on the market for some uh, instead of others? Um, I guess it was interesting to listen to the optionality that Simon and Fonterra have. Obviously, we're not of that anywhere near that sort of scale. We export to just over 20 countries. If I look across each of the elements that, that we export, quite different exposures on each. If we start off with Kaura, for example, pretty much 100% of um, what we export goes to China. And we've got a big exposure that sits there. Um, I guess the, the one mitigation we do have through there is that it's multiple channels and quite different consumer bases that we run through there. So even though it's a single country target market, actually, we're not just doing it through one distribution channel. If I look as far as I guess the other mitigant, that's really only about 10% of our overall business. So I guess in, in terms of if we get real issues with that, it's not going to have a major impact overall. As far as muscles are concerned, that's probably about half of our business. And we've had a really, really strong growth going through to China over the last 10 years. There's been real price volatility that sat with that, but most of that's really been from probably our side of things as far as supply issues are concerned. The COVID impact has been significant, and I guess that's more around supply chain Again, we haven't got the, the leverage from the scale that we are. We haven't got the leverage to get that access as far as freight is concerned. So that's had some real impacts. But that, I guess for us, that market, China has represented up to 30, sometimes 40% of our muscle sales. It's currently, we've backed off there and it's sitting at around about 20% at the moment. Um, as far as wine is concerned, um, I wish they would take more. It's a small part at the moment as far as our business is concerned, but it's a, it's a high value proposition. And I guess it would be nice to actually be in the position of saying that it could create a problem. So we'll, we'll look forward to that one coming through. Right. So focusing in on Cora, I guess products with the highest exposure and the lowest leverage might be the first ones to run into problems, according to John's report. I know this was your before your time at Kono, Andy, but during the first great Chinese lockdown at the start of 2020, what was Kono's plan B for your live Kora exports at that time, and was it successful? Well, I guess the, the very fortunate thing for us was that the, the majority of Kora gets um, exported for Chinese New Year, and I guess as far as the lockdown was concerned, the majority of the sales had already been, been undertaken, and therefore, uh, as far as 2020 was concerned, it actually had very minimal impact. That was more by good luck than good design, but I guess if we had been caught through as far as that's concerned, there, there always is a plan B as far as we have different lower value formats running through. North America takes frozen tails, for example, rather than the live format. Um, so there's options to actually keep the product moving, but I guess the, the consequence of that is that it's a much lower value proposition that runs through. So it's a risk reward proposition as far as taking that level of exposure in China. And I guess the, the Chinese and the Chinese market has served us very well through long-term relationships that we, we do place a lot of reliance on, but it's that risk reward that sits through. We've received a few audience questions already, um, and so I'd like to start sharing those. And uh, first, one from an anonymous attendee, uh, but we're happy to take those. Do you sense an incoming shift in the international landscape from trading with who offers the best price to trading with who is the most like-minded, particularly thinking of EU nations who are now considering their trading relationship with Russia? Simon, do you want to have a crack at that one? It's, a, it's an excellent question. I guess the way I would tackle this, I think it's fair to say the terrible situation with you know Russia's invasion of Ukraine has brought to the fore these questions of like-mindedness 
and certainly the strong collective response from many nations around the world, I guess particularly amongst what could be described as sort of Western like-minded to put sanctions on Russia has been quite remarkable. I think the important thing when you're thinking about China and New Zealand is that while um, we may be on different sides of some of these discussions in terms of like-mindedness, I still believe it's possible. In fact, I think it's really important that New Zealand has a very positive economic commercial relationship with China. And I think, you know, both governments have been clear, they understand there will be disagreements, but that doesn't have to define the relationship or necessarily get in the way of of a healthy commercial and economic relationship. And I think our interest is in ensuring that both governments are managing that carefully and are investing in the positives. You know, there are many positive aspects to the New Zealand-China relationship that has been historically, uh, and there's no reasons why there shouldn't be in the future. Yeah, I'm, I'm not making light of this challenge, but I think that would be our view on the way forward. Sure. Yeah, and I guess the other point that um, we're never going to be 100% like-minded with any other countries, including some of our closest partners. John, I'm going to throw to you if you had a comment. Just to flag that these these discussions around increasing trade with those who are you know, share your values has introduced a, a new phrase called friend shoring, which I hadn't heard before. So we've gone from offshoring to onshoring to reshoring to friend shoring. I, I think it's an interesting trend. I've heard it mentioned a lot and, and we'll, we'll just have to see how that plays out commercially. Thanks. One of the charts you put up was showing the degree of exposure of some other trade partners to to various markets, and and some were significant. The question is, other countries seem to have significant exposure to markets themselves. Do you have any insight into whether similar conversations and concerns are had within those countries? Is New Zealand too worried about the whole issue of of exposure to a single market? Um, Well, too worried is, is also a judgment just like too exposed. It's going to depend on your individual circumstances as a business, really, or, or even um, you know, a government. But, I mean, we do know that these conversations uh, were, were had in Australia, yeah, similar types of discussions. There's been quite a lot of academic research into uh, what's happened to uh, Australia and, and the China relationship. And I think we can look at that for a bit of guidance, and indeed we do in our report. Discussions in, in the UK in terms of its links to the EU, I don't think that was really about uh, economic dependence. It was about a broader set of factors to, to do with politics and um, immigration and justice uh, decisions, all those sort of things. So I think it was a slightly different type of uh, over-reliance that, that got people a bit worked up that led to Brexit. So yes, slightly different. The strong links between, say, Canada and, and, and the US, it's going to be pretty hard for that to ever change, given their very long border together and their very enmeshed value chains through uh, NAFTA and now USMCA or whatever that's called now. I think the discussions are absolutely had. You know, the Cook Islands has uh, concerns about being too reliant on New Zealand for tourism uh, and wants to diversify its market. So these discussions are going on all the time. Um, and it's good to have them because you do need to think about, um, as Andy mentioned, risk and reward and, and how much risk you're prepared to take on. So I don't think we're unique in having these discussions. I think they differ from country to country. But I think it's part of a healthy debate at the business level and across officials and, and industry groups like this. Thank you. And back to you, Simon, this, this ability for at least some of our exporters, larger exporters perhaps, to quickly redirect 
either raw materials into other products for export or redirect products to other markets in response to unexpected market disruptions. And I, I guess Fonterra has had to do this perhaps multiple times over the last two years in response to COVID. What were some of the hardest challenges in terms of that and, and any key lessons that were learned as a result of that? Yeah, no, thanks, Alice. I've already mentioned, you know, some of the sort of headlines there, probably in retrospect, quite obvious. At a time when hotels and restaurants are closed and there's no tourists, then obviously your food service business into, into that sector is going to be very slow. In China, in the first wave of the pandemic back in, in 2020, um, I saw a graph of our food service sales in China and it, it literally looked like they'd fallen off a cliff, but also bounced back remarkably strongly. I guess in terms of lessons, you know, one of the things that we've really invested in, and I appreciate we've probably got the scale to be able to do this, but having people in market with really strong relationships with customers and having their eyes and ears open about what's happening has been really, really important to us as we've we've navigated through this. I think the other point that perhaps hasn't come up yet today, but maybe Andy mentioned it, we have really felt, you know, one of the biggest impacts of the pandemic globally for, for exporters has been the disruption to supply chains. I mean, it's been a big disruption to importers as well. Uh, obviously, but because of our, we, we've had a long-standing commercial partnership with Maersk Shipping through Kotahi uh, and um, and the Port of Tauranga, and that ability to make sure that we could continue to get product to market has been really important. In some cases, it's been different products going to different markets, but we've been able to get the product out of the country, and I think that has been indispensable. And we've worked really hard to try and help some of the smaller New Zealand exporters who haven't been able to find hold space or boxes uh, to do that. So I don't think there's any simple lesson, even despite all of that, it's been an awful lot of extra work. But I think in some ways, you know, the New Zealand export sector should be pretty proud of what's happened in the past couple of years. For goods exporters, you know, despite the challenges, we've actually performed pretty strongly. And I think it's been very important for the New Zealand economy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 5% export growth last year as a country uh, in the circumstances we were facing is, is pretty remarkable. Um, Andy, uh, Simon's just mentioned the importance of relationships. Uh, and I know you and I have had a chat in the past about the particular emphasis that Maori business place on maintaining long-term relationships in a situation where things are changing very quickly and, and you know, markets are opening and closing and, and product may have to be uh, diverted elsewhere very suddenly. How does um, Connell's roots in, in Te Ao Māori affect how you work through issues like that and also in terms of um, spreading risk and market diversification? It's always really interesting when the, I guess, when the pressure comes on as far as either access to market or how your end customers are going to actually react to a particular situation. It's when you start finding out where those real relationships actually hold. And I guess we operate under a, for me being reasonably new in this role, when you hear that we've got a 500-year strategy and therefore you play through there, even things like COVID, which we might well reflect on for the next five years or 10 years, end up being just a blip in a much larger strategic play. So when you start thinking about intergenerational partnership, a lot of the time we spend a lot of time sorting through not so much around market segments, but actually looking for like-minded people. And so often we're dealing with, with families, we're dealing with intergenerational companies, and therefore the, the decision-making that gets 
done on both sides um, strikes me as being much more transparent, much more understanding of other people's business drivers, and therefore much more recognition of a less transactional play. And therefore, often there's more options that are open, or often it's a it's a look more for those win-win situations. So it's not meaning to say that you don't still have to make some tough calls, but that some quite often the nature of the conversations and the ramifications of those calls can mean that you can walk back in that door as soon as the situation changes again. And I think that's a really strong play that's um, that I don't think it is purely Māori organisations, yeah. but we but we lead out through there far more transparently than maybe other organisations. But I think strong organisations in general across New Zealand are really building as far as those consumer relationships and, and making those much stronger ties. But I, I think there is just a much more deliberate and transparent play coming through from Māori set of values and how we actually want to, to operate. Sure. Thanks very much, Andy. I'm going to get back to the excellent questions that are still coming in. Um, and there's a couple that I think would be well suited for John. The first is that it's interesting to see China is still a big destination for Australian exports, despite their differences. Can you comment? And then there was a second one around that we hear a lot about Australia, but there are also some smaller players, um, you know, the Ireland's of this world or Chile, And how are they exposed and how are they handling similar issues to the ones that New Zealand is managing? Thanks for those questions. Uh, The first one, yeah, you're you're right. um, Australia's overall exposure to China hasn't changed enormously. The bans on imports from Australia on things like wine and coal are important. There's a lot of other exports going from Australia to, to China as well that are critical for China's overall economy. So it's fair to say that China's not going to cut off its nose to spite its face in terms of its imports. It still needs a lot of these products. The numbers just don't show up overall. It's also a fact that um, the data we're looking at is 2021. So there may be some timing issues there as well. So I don't expect the overall exposure to change enormously, but it will change at the product level. And about other smaller economies, Ireland and Chile are both more exposed than New Zealand on both the export and the import side of things. Um, Ireland is not really on the radar. By my read, um, China takes around six or seven percent of Ireland's exports and Ireland imports about 8% of its total imports from China. Now, whether or not that's affected by trade patterns going through the EU, I'm not entirely sure, Um, but it doesn't look like Ireland's overly exposed to China. There are others like Peru who are are highly trade exposed as well. A lot of it just comes down to individual products um, and and proximity to market. Thank you. A couple of questions have come through with a focus on what is described as as China's pivot to self-reliance, maybe starting with... Simon, um, any comments on China's growth or move towards self-reliance in many areas? Or as Jerry Claude says, is the idea of trade dependency on China in our hands? Is China's focus on self-reliance actually now moving quicker than our ability to shift markets? Yeah, I mean, it's a great subject. I think in some senses, the dual circulation is a, a natural expression of China's economic development. You know, for decades, it's been economic growth built off export performance. Uh, And as the economy has grown and become more sophisticated, I think the future, their economic performance will be driven much more around internal demand. I mean, it's a natural progression that, that economies go through. And I think to some extent, that's what underpins this. I'm not being too overconfident here, but what we're seeing in China where dairy is concerned is 
um, consumption is significantly outstripping domestic production growth. So, in fact, what we see is a widening gap between what China produces dairy-wise internally and, and, and what their customers and consumers there want. So um, that does give us a certain degree of confidence in that market. We have got some very sophisticated China dairy companies operating. Some of them have invested here in New Zealand. We see them around the world. We're in partnership with a number of them. But I think that's just an exciting part of the sort of growing place of dairy in China's diet. And Andy, for your range of products that you're exporting to China, similar view that they'll still need us in areas like wine and and wine? Well, I, I think what it does do is really reinforce Simon's earlier comment around the fact that you know, well, whilst we're not a large organisation, we have invested in actually having people on the ground and office in, in China. And actually, therefore, the only real way to understand what is happening there and the changes and the pace of changes that are going through is to is to actually you know, walk the streets and actually find out on the ground level what's going on. There's, a, there's an awful lot that will get reported and there's an awful lot that will flow through. But the pace at which we've got to change, you've got to hear it at the front end rather than at the back end to be able to, to react. We have seen changes in consumer preferences as far as impacting in part as far as muscles are concerned, but that comes more around format than anything else. But I think it does, it does really reiterate the, the importance of on-the-ground information. Maybe, Alistair, just to jump in, you know, what one of the things we are seeing in, in the consumer preferences, and, and perhaps COVID has reinforced this, a massive focus on health and well-being and the dairy nutrition story, um, again, and the innovation we're putting in both here in New Zealand, but also we're doing a lot of innovation on the ground in China and in partnership with some of our customers about really an increasingly sophisticated array of, of, of ingredients and finished products that are really going to meet that growing demand. I think the other thing we're seeing in China, which is fascinating, is a lot of interest in the provenance, particularly the environmental sustainability of, of the products there. You know, this is probably a, a middle class city thing more than a, a generalised thing. But again, I think one of the things that gives us confidence in that market is, is we believe the lowest carbon dairy in the world. New Zealand's got a really strong story to tell when, with respect to carbon footprint, you know, high animal welfare standards, distance to cover on, on water, but a strong story that, you know, it is quite a nice um, package that as we think about our share of the Chinese consumer's pocket, we feel Fonterra can bring quite a lot to that. We're rapidly coming to the end of our time, um, but a final question for you, John, about 2022. Simon has already acknowledged the really disturbing reports coming out of China around lockdowns and the impact on families, and also uh, the impact on the economy. Has anything that you've seen in 2022 so far, and doing a a bit of crystal ball gazing uh, for maybe the rest of this year, does that affect the conclusions in your report at all that China is still a market with huge potential for New Zealand? I think what we can expect for the rest of 22 is is ongoing disruption, and it's going to come through um, a series of channels, both through um, break costs, time to market, both directions, shipping availability, all those sort of things. There could be a potential income effect um, as production has dropped in in China, which means presumably less money going out, out of businesses to workers and households. So that could affect demand as well. I don't think it fundamentally changes what's going to be in the report overall, but it is going to be another challenge in the year. But first and foremost, um, got a feel for those who are experiencing this lockdown. It's going to be tough, but um, 
nothing changes the overall um, findings of the report for me. Thanks. So we'll have to wrap up. Um, I'd like to thank again the North Asia Cape for co-hosting today and providing all the tech support. And thanks again to NZTE, ANZ, Minter Allison, Rudd Watts, the New Zealand International Business Forum and the Cape for co-sponsoring the report. Thanks for listening. You can access our report on our website, nzchinacouncil.org.nz. For more podcasts, please check out that website or follow us on Spotify, SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts.